Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 329 of the podcast. It's January 21st, 2019. Joining me today is Mike Eisenberg. He is the director, editor, and producer of the film To Air is Human, a documentary about the incredibly important issue of patient safety. The film shares a title with the groundbreaking 1999 report from the Institute of Medicine. Again, To Air is Human. The film will be available tomorrow as a digital download through Apple iTunes, and it's also available as a Blu-ray or DVD through Amazon. There will also be screenings taking place around the country, and you can arrange one at your health system or other event, because I think this is something hopefully that our communities get engaged in, not just healthcare professionals. In the film, Eisenberg was able to interview many people who are very familiar to me, including Dr. Don Berwick, Captain Sully Sullenberger, Lucian Leap, and uh, two people I've interviewed in previous podcasts, Dr. Bob Wachter and Leah Binder. Endorsements for the film come from some other really big names in this movement, including Dr. Atul Gawande, who said about the film, we invest tens of billions to find cures for disease, but barely a fraction of that to find cures for one of the world's biggest killers, medical errors. This important documentary conveys just how big a mistake that is. It also shows how we can do better. For the problem isn't bad clinicians, it's the complexity that good clinicians have to deal with every day. So in our conversation about the film, Mike and I talk about the scale and the breadth of patient safety problems, some of the systemic causes, and some of the solutions that are being tried and used in healthcare. Now, the term lean is not a part of the film, but Mike has said to me that he's aware of the alignment between lean and systemic patient safety improvement. But as I understand, there are limitations to what could be put into a 77-minute film. But there are common themes, including not blaming bad apples and improving the way care is delivered in a systematic way. I had the opportunity to watch the film before the interview. It's, it's very powerful. It's well-produced. I hope you'll check it out, whether you're a patient or a healthcare professional or leader. It's important that we help the public understand that patient safety can't be taken for granted. And it's important that hospitals step up their efforts on this front. So if you'd like to find links to the film and other things I've mentioned, you can go to leanblog.org slash 329, where the website for the film is toairishumanfilm.com. Thanks for listening. Mike, hi. Thank you so much for being a guest and um, being here to talk about such an important topic today. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. So, you know, so much we can get into today, but I would just love to hear uh, your story as a filmmaker, individual, as, a, as an individual, as a person. What inspired you um, to tackle this topic? Um, it's it's a mix of uh, of a few things, but really, it started in uh, 2015. Uh, I, I had sort of been looking around for our next film. And when I say we, I'll say that a lot. We is my, myself, Matt and Kaylee, who are my two co-producers. And we work together at, at, at with our own production company in Chicago. And we we're kind of looking for a story to tell. It's, all, it's what we do. And looking inward is always a, a helpful way to do that. And I was thinking about my father a little bit at that time because I had read a, an article about the AHRQ Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality potentially getting defunded. And this is an article that tends to be sort of regurgitated every year. But at that point, I sort of saw it with a different set of eyes and thought, well, maybe this is a story that we should tell. Not a lot of people know about this agency, and they certainly don't understand how important the work that they do is to the quality of healthcare in this country. So let's go interview them. Let's go interview the people who worked with my dad when he ran that agency and find out what's going on. And for some additional context, my dad passed away in 2002. So, you know, I was 17 at the time. I didn't have a significant interest in health policy or health care in general. And um, over the years, I've sort of seen how much it, it, it really involves itself in everyone's lives. But I still didn't know much about patient safety or preventable mistakes. The statistics that we present in the film were fairly new to me. 
And so we went out to DC. We interviewed people like Carolyn Clancy, Lisa Simpson, um, Helen Burstyn, a handful of others who, who had all sort of worked with my father and are now in areas of healthcare that tap into different, different pieces of the, of the puzzle. And as we were interviewing them, we realized that this is a much bigger picture uh, to, to paint than just AHRQ. How can we tell the story of patient safety, which really hadn't been told, in my opinion, in a productive way that showed solutions, but also engaged both patients and providers um, with the same messaging? So our goal was transformed into, now let's find the experts in patient safety. Let's travel the country and interview them, but also find examples of these efforts and, and show what it looks like when people are actually putting in the effort to fix preventable mistakes. And outside of all that, we have to do something as filmmakers to, to make it more than just you know um, a PowerPoint presentation of solutions. So we, we, we connected with the Sheridan family whose story is told throughout the film. And we tried to really branch out their story into much more than just the incident that happened, but actually follow them as a family, how that incident has changed them and turned them into this empowered family that is, is now on a mission to make sure that the same things don't happen to other people. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the problem of harm, um, deaths caused by medical error and in particular preventable medical error. I mean, you know, you say a lot of people didn't or don't know about AHRQ. A lot of people uh, don't know about what in, in a lot of circumstances would be called a crisis. We could call this maybe a patient safety crisis. Um, families, I've met far too many people um, like the Sheridans who, who think what has happened to their loved one is, is maybe a really rare isolated incident when it's often um, too frequent and too systemic or, you know, very systemic problem. So I was wondering, you know, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, framing, um, you know, the, the, the impact on families. And um, I, right. I imagine there were other families you met and you, you chose the Sheridans. Um, you know, how do you, know, how do you think about their individual story? Plus then the context of the statistics. Right. right. And I, you know, I, I think that those two things are very married in a way that people don't tend to think about. Um, when we get these numbers that are really huge, um, whether they're estimates or whether they're calculated one by one, people lose the, they, they see the big picture, they lose the small intimate stories that really change lives. They, you know, I mean, it, one person is harmed, it affects 15 to 20 other people who are now, you know, alerted to this thing they didn't even know existed in the first place. Now, it, it's so important to tell those stories. And when we were really kind of kicking the can around in our heads about how to do that, we thought, well, why don't we use six or seven different patient stories as these sort of, uh, you know, chapter breaks in our film. And we'll sort of say, okay, well, here's something that happened over here and then showcase a solution um, and if we had done that, you know, it would have been great to maybe even do this as an episodic thing, uh, like six or seven episodes to tell different stories of patient safety rather than one film. You can see how many different directions the documentary can go. But we, we thought, well, if you do that, if you just kind of reduce these people to the incident or the headline, then you really don't get to the core of what we believe can help solve some of these issues which is what happens next, how it affects the family and how deep this impact goes. So when we were looking for that story, the, the Sheridans were this perfect blend of not only empowerment, but also a deep connection to my father. Um, I didn't actually know this until after I reached out to her, but she was uh, given her first platform in, in the year 2000 at a summit that my father hosted on medical error, which was sort of spurred on by that, at that time, the 1998-99 Two Errors Human Report by the Institute of Medicine that really kicked things off. So he set up uh, a, a big summit with a long panel um, of experts, but then he also gave the patients a voice, and that voice at that time was Sue Sheridan. It's her first chance to tell her story. And her story, in a nutshell, it was you know, her son, Cal, has cerebral palsy at that time he was five years old 
due to, you know, uh, the absence of a $27 test that easily could have been and should have been done to test his bilirubin levels and notice that they were too high, take the necessary steps after that and prevent the brain damage from escalating and now giving him lifelong cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. But she also had a second incident in which her husband, Pat, died from cancer, which the diagnosis, the proper diagnosis, was delayed six months after they had done the initial tests because some of the paperwork did not follow through on the, on the channels that they should have and got sort of lost in the shuffle. And that's six months that he could have had treatment. So I, when I say all this, though, what I think really gets lost in the messaging of the numbers is, you know, the, the, the research that we sort of take, take into the film is the biggest number of as many as 440,000 die every year from medical error, which was the 2012 study by John James. There's been something more recently, which happened during the making of our film, so it was a little late for us to include it, but also, you know, we can get into those semantics another time which was the Johns Hopkins one that went a little bit more specific and said 251,000. But what I think is really important is for people to understand, especially when they don't agree with those numbers, which happens often, mm-hmm. is that, you know, Pat Sheridan died from cancer. There's no doubt about that. His death certificate says that he died from cancer, that he died from the specific kind that he had. But when you really look at the big picture of his death, what would have been different had he gotten treatment six months earlier? Would he have lived longer? Could he have survived the cancer? And, and this is something that happens all over the country all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even, even someday, you know, when people who aren't killed by an error specifically, but an error changes the course of their life, their whole life is changed. It will never mm-hmm. show up on their death certificate. That's not something the CDC does, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's made this issue extremely complicated and a lot tougher to diagnose as an issue because we're not able to really specifically show, well, this person died because of that medical error. Mm -hmm. So when you really look at it all, I think one of the biggest things that we, we want to get across to people is um, this issue is about one person at a time. Mm -hmm. And it's not just what happens. It's what happens next. And it's the responsibility of everybody to, to step in and say, what happened here and how can we prevent it from happening again and again and again and again and just becoming something that we ignore and, and assume as part of healthcare because in many cases it's not. Right. And, you know, situations like this, uh, I've, I've read and heard many, many stories about people assuming, so I, I assumed no news was good news. They didn't hear anything back about the results of a biopsy or a test. And what happened was exactly what happened to Pat Sheridan, where, where something was lost in the shuffle. Um, there, there wasn't you know, an airtight communication pathway between pathology and the physician and the patient. Um, you know, so I, you know, people think about things like this as being maybe a one in a million chance, but the odds, um, forget the number you, you cite in the film, but, but the odds of being uh, subject to an error uh, in, in the course of a hospital stay are really high. I've seen different estimates to say one in 300 patients get harmed during an admission and that, you know, who, who knows what the exact number is, but um, this is something that, that's clearly occurring uh, every day, probably in every hospital in the United States and other developed countries. I, I think there's a great analogy to the car industry here. Um, you know, in the film, we, we, we go forth with the, the aviation analogies and comparisons, which has really taken a lot of attention in this issue. But there are other industries that are great ones to look at. The car industry being um, one that for so many years said, well, you know, people crash. People die in cars. It happens. Um, let's try and make people better drivers and they'll figure it out. And, you know, it was, I wasn't around at the time, but Ralph Nader did, had something to do with it as I understand. And, uh, you know, the, the transition into making cars safer because humans are not reliable to get better was a huge transformation in that industry. And when they realized that instead of relying on people to be perfect, let's make the cars 
protect the people when they make mistakes is such a perfect analogy. And I, you know, I, I think about it a lot nowadays. It was only brought to my attention after we finished the film. And when, when you look at, there are so many different reasons why people crash in a car, but the cars are all built to withstand those incidents. If you are, you know, if you're drunk and you're negligent, that's different. That's very tough right. to, to, to create a system that can prevent that kind of thing from happening. And that's where I think a lot of people get caught up as well when they're not familiar with this issue. They think, well, medical errors are negligent doctors. They're bad doctors. They're people who are trying to hurt you and they should be kicked out of the health industry. Well, yeah, they should. But our film never touched. We don't go near that because mm -hmm. Right. When you really look at this thing, you realize that there are far more good doctors, good nurses, good surgeons making errors that they might not even know they're making simply because the system's set up in a way to allow those errors to reach the patient. And right. it's, it's not until the patient feels that error, the harm is felt by them, that it becomes aware to the team. And so if we can get people to know that this is something that happens, they might be more empowered to prevent that from happening to them. You, you gave in a, you know, you said something that reminded me of um, my, a family member of mine just this week went in for um, a third Achilles surgery. You know, she's had some tricky complications with the surgery. Um, but what I found most interesting was just the other day, she's going in and they talked about some antibiotic they were going to give her. She knew that that was not the correct antibiotic. Mm -hmm. She spoke up. She said something. And she got them to, uh, she convinced them that this was the wrong antibiotic. They didn't believe her at first. Hmm. It's really easy for that kind of mistake to happen. And it probably wouldn't have harmed her, or killed her, but she wouldn't have had the proper antibiotic. She wouldn't have had the ability to fight the infection if anything came up. And so this is why it's so important for patients to know about this issue and also see what it looks like when errors happen and how easy it is for them to escalate. Yeah, and, and there's this, um, you know, this, this human tendency to point fingers of blame. We see this in all sorts of different workplaces. You know, one thing I appreciate about the work of um, you know, Don Berwick and Bob Wachter and Lucian Leith and others who also appear in the film is that, you know, for a couple of decades now, they've been emphasizing the need to focus on systems and that when organizations focus on blame and punishment that does nothing but cover up situations. Um, and, then, and then those situations don't get addressed. If people are afraid of being punished for something that might be considered a near miss, that opportunity to improve and pre prevent something um, is, uh, from happening in the future is, is lost. So I, I'm, I'm glad that that point, you know, comes through clearly in the film. And, and another point that, was was really strong was the idea of uh, I forget who it was who said, you know, because we're human, human error is bound to happen, and therefore we need to create systems that are I'm paraphrasing, you know, create systems that are robust to prevent error from becoming harm. That she said, zero error is never going to happen, but zero harm is is much more likely. So I was wondering if you could you know maybe elaborate on on some of that point or what, what you learned from the patient safety experts in the film. There was a lot of learning going on during the making of this film for us. Um, you know, we don't come from a medical background. Uh, the closest we do is the papers and stacks of papers on the floor in my dad's office that I had to step over when I wanted to see him. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this is news to us. And so I think that also gave us the chance to ask questions that um, people may not be asking within healthcare because they're familiar enough with it. So, you know, this is, we, we go into the Swiss cheese model in this film, and I mm -hmm. think that's a good, a good place to go here. This is not always a case of knowing what kind of errors are, are, are occurring or, or that you even made one in the first place, but understanding the, the power of the team in making right. sure that, um, you know, somebody is speaking up and that, that we have more than one set of eyes looking at the, at, at the process. Um, that's not to say that, you know, examples in our film, like the um, surgical uh, black box mm -hmm. are the solution to every problem. It, it's not, 
Um, Big Brother is not the solution to all of our issues or anything like that. But uh, it, understanding where humans are imperfect is is really at the core of it. We interviewed a psychologist in the film who goes into you know just the general convincing of you as the audience member that look you're not perfect you're going to make mistakes we didn't name this film to air as human because of the report uh, we named it because that is really the core still of this problem 20 years later and if we can all work together to acknowledge that humans just can't deliver perfection and they certainly can't deliver it when the system that they're working in isn't supporting that Mm -hmm. um, there's a great saying that, you know, all systems are designed to achieve exactly what they achieve. I'm, I'm totally misquoting it, but, you know, that that's so yeah, they, they, they get the results that the system is designed to produce. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's something exactly. like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And without that team approach, without really being able to step back and look at what's happened, you, you just can't possibly see the mistakes. And it's and, you know, it's very difficult for for us in the moment to know that we did something wrong. You just keep trucking through. And especially when we're talking about surgery in which, you know, every moment is important. That's where teamwork is so important. But even on the less dramatic side, diagnosis, it's also a team sport. It, it, it involves a, a litany of, or uh, it involves a, a ton of people uh, down the line. They'll have to do their job right. And it's not their job to follow up with the person that they're supposed to send something to, to make sure that person got it. Right. And that's kind of what happens with Pat, with his cancer diagnosis. It wasn't the job of the uh, pathologist to call the physician to make sure that he got the information and relate it to the right. patient. It's his job to just make sure that the facts went through or something like that. Right. Uh, you know, and, and that's where, that's where these errors happen. And they happen in the regular workplace. They happen in conversations with spouses. But when you're talking about healthcare, there's a lot more on the line. There's lives are on the line. Well, you know, I, I'm reminded of a case that was in the news maybe 10 years ago, uh, a patient, Derry Eason. And this was a case where she was given the wrong test results. She was given uh, a diagnosis of a pretty bad form of breast cancer based on the uh, pathology results from a biopsy, and um, they they had a second reading of the wrong report, and you know that that wasn't the right uh, solution. But you know she was rushed into surgery, and after uh, a radical double mastectomy, was told, well, you know the uh, the good news is you never had cancer to begin with, and they traced it back to uh, a mislabeling of a slide in pathology. And you know even though my background is engineering, I've had the opportunity to go and observe people working in labs. They, they, you know, they have the sample, they create thin slices, they put it on a slide, and at some point that slide has to be labeled. And I've seen too many settings where the risk of error is way too high, whether somebody's, somebody's handwriting a number on a slide or whether it's being printed. A lot of times these, this work gets done in batches. And I was in a different lab, this is not the lab uh, from the Derry Eason case, but you could see, I'm thinking through, there's a risk that that skilled, attentive, well-trained medical technologist is going to grab the wrong slide because they had three different slides for three different patients in their field of work. And I asked the lab manager about this, this risk of error. This is how engineers are trained to think. This could go wrong. We need right. to prevent that risk. And the, and the lab manager, without pause, she said, Oh, well, no, that's okay. My people are really careful. And so I think there's a couple different layers of the problem. You could say, well, the cause of the error in a case like Derry Eason's was bad process. The cause of these problems not being fixed comes back more, I think, to some of the, the, the mindsets of leaders of, of not recognizing, well, your people are careful, but they're, they're human. They're going to make a mistake at some point. And, you know, it's not sufficient to wait until the error occurs and then punish that person for being human. Mm -hmm. And making this case is tough, too, because uh, we, we need to engage the patients in this conversation. Um, and, and most people in this country uh, have no interest in adding another responsibility to their health care. Um, but that's because they don't understand how valuable they are in the process either. And 
it's it's they don't see doctors, nurses, surgeons as human beings, right? They they don't they and that's not totally their fault. Um, I think we've been we've been conditioned this way, right. Right. and and that's why you know I, I often say that I, I maybe it's not our film, but I think that this kind of sort of medical education, this um, uh, what what's it called, health literacy, needs to be handled at a much younger age for people. Not only because of the com- the complexity of of understanding of the system and health insurance and how this is a topic every day in the news and and in in politics, but because at the most simple level, when you're 18 years old, you very well might be even younger. You might be called upon by your family to take care of somebody. And if you understand that these people at this hospital or or at this nursing home are juggling a lot, they're really trying their best all day, every day. And also they're human and they might have a bad day too, that they need your help. And we all have to work together as a team to prevent these errors from happening. But when I say that, it comes with a caveat. It's not just the patient's responsibility. And the patients are never going to get involved in this process unless the healthcare system opens the door for them. They're not going to pull. We're not, we, don't, we don't need the healthcare system to pull people through the door, yank them in. But the door has to be opened, right? This is a situation in which uh, both sides really need to open up. And need to understand how, uh, how how fragile the situation really is, and 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 how it's not going to be fixed just by, you know, connecting patients and providers this way. But that's a huge step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I also think that in many cases, hospitals systems don't think that it's worth the the investment. They don't see why they should spend money on something that patients don't necessarily care about, in their opinion. But yeah that's where films like ours can play a role in helping create awareness about something without trying to drag the system down. Our film is not, um, or at least we, we, we really try not to present these issues in a negative way. We, we tried to look at my father's career and say, what were some of the most important things to him when he was on television, you know, sending this message to the American people. And in many cases, it was what we've been talking about. It was the, how easy it is to make a mistake and how we're all human and, and how we need to work together as a team to make sure that these errors don't keep happening. Yeah. And I, I agree. Um, it's, it's not enough for, for advocates or organizations to lecture patients. You should speak up because like you said, society conditions people to not question doctors. Um, you know, you even look at some of the language involved, you know, doctor's orders, yeah. as opposed to doctor's recommendations or doctor's decisions. And there, there's, I think, kind of an adjacent side of the patient safety movement. There, there's an organization called the Society for Participatory Medicine. And it, 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 I, I agree with you. It's got to be invited by the, the hospitals and the doctors on the individual level. There was a doctor, a, a hospital I worked with, this is maybe 10 years ago, they did uh, some survey of patients and, and something like uh, two thirds of them said they were unwilling to speak up and question the doctor for different reasons. And, and, and things like that are, are gonna take time to change. One of our uh, original poster concepts, and I had scribbled things on paper uh, for a few weeks until we settled on what eventually was our real poster was a rendition of the touch of God painting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, it's the doctor's hand uh, <laughs> with the stethoscope coming out of the frame and the patient being the human. And I just feel like that was such a good rendition of like how people see the healthcare system mm-hmm. and, and, and nobody, nobody questions. And, and I think it, it, it's okay to to be nervous about questioning. I mean, I I don't think it's healthy for people to just go on WebMD and come in with a diagnosis and tell their doctor that they're right. But sure. I, I do think that understanding how to get information before you walk into the doctor's office to say, this is what I've heard, tell me what you think, wouldn't be a, such a bad thing. More importantly, when people leave our film, I, I've, I've heard from you know, the general public who've occasionally been able to see the film prior to its release and said, you know, like, 
now they're going to the hospital and they're seeing the hand washing. They like look for the sink. They they're thinking about whether or not they 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 can say, "Hey, did you wash your hands before you walked in here?" It, look, we're not talking about someone stopping a syringe of you know eight hundred grams of morphine or whatever, uh, you know. But we're talking about some really simple things that are going to change the the behaviors that lead to error, that lead to yeah. mistakes, and lead to infections. Yeah. Yeah, so let, let, let's talk more about you know the the solution side of things because you know I think in the film and as you're saying, it's good to recognize that problems are not caused by the proverbial bad apples. Uh, about you know vast majority of the time, these are systems issues related to things like communication, hand hygiene, um, you know things that are hardly rocket science or on on the the, the edge of medical technology. So what what are some of the solutions that you researched and um, ended up in the film of, of, of ways people are trying to uh, reduce harm to patients? Well, we, uh, we tried to show a few different examples um, at each level. You know, we understand that it, it's, it's too much to expect the most cutting edge technology to solve every problem. Even, right. e, even EHRs uh, created new problems. So, um, yeah. That's the nature of technology, but at its most basic, there's a cultural thing that can happen at, at institutions and hospitals. We, one of my favorite scenes in the film is uh, one where we're at UC Davis and we're following their physician assistants training program where they have actual, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like an actor, but somebody who right. walks in and, and plays the role of the patient. And it's, they have a game plan of how they're going to interact with the physician assistant student, but the student doesn't know what's going to happen and they just have a sort of sheet of paper of, of what they're supposed to do. Hey, you know, we, we saw something when we looked back at our scan a few weeks later that we should have noticed the first time. And so we need to do a follow-up. This is not like the most dramatic example on the planet, but it, it's something that happens every day in healthcare and how you navigate that conversation is probably the most underutilized skill in healthcare teaching doctors, nurses, how to speak to patients about an, an error instead of letting the hospital just sort of sweep it under the rug. And if the patient sues, then we'll just let the lawyers handle it. That's a really complex skill to learn. And it only helps everybody. Like, there's no loser in this situation. And I, I think that example is a really good one for people to see because it doesn't cost any money to do it. Maybe if you have to pay the actor, I don't know. But, yeah. you know, we also show um, a higher end version where, you know, there's in Toronto, there's a surgeon who's taking what he's seen from the aviation industry, applying it into healthcare in a way that's not, like I said before, big brother, where, you know, you have cameras in the surgical theater trying to protect the hospital or, you know, give the patient material to sue. That's not what it's about. It's about right. collecting data. It's about saying, okay, well, how many times was the door open? How many times were, was the surgery handed off to uh, you know, an assistant rather than the lead surgeon? It, those are things that when they compile them and put them into a data stream, they're able to see where the weaknesses are in their process and then use that information to get better. And more importantly, share that information with other hospitals so that they can start to apply that science to their own. Um, those are two sort of both ends of the spectrum yeah. examples that we have in the film. Um, and, and there are certainly others, but at the core of them all is about training uh, and, and teaching about the culture of safety and how we have to think about these issues differently. And, you know, yeah. Sue, Sue Sheridan's cool. example is is one of very specific uh, Billy Rubin tests were not being administered properly, um, if at all, sometimes, and that was her goal to make sure that that yeah. was done at every hospital. That's that's pretty yeah concrete. When and, and when errors occur, I, I think it was Sue's story where she I forget if it was after you know related to Cal or or Pat, but. She had, was she the one who had the meeting lined up with hospital executives and, yeah. and, and she showed up and the only person there was the chaplain, which I think right. that's, that's rude. That's disrespectful. And it seems like that's where people really start to go after an organization when they, when they feel 
brushed off, ignored, disrespected. I mean, I've seen, it seems like, um, you know, some of, there's been a lot of reports that, that say when, when a doctor or an organization sincerely apologizes that the, the lawsuits go down. And, you know, I don't, you know, I think there, there's a deeper issue where if, if, if doctors are not afraid and if they're taught how to speak about things that have happened to the patient, hopefully that also teaches them to speak about these things internally of, of how to raise issues and do something then as a result to prevent harm in the future. I, I hate to ask, if, if that hospital, yet alone every hospital now routinely uh, does that test for, for patients or not. I hate to ask what the follow-up was. I, I don't know if you know how widespread, has that become a, a, a best practice? I, I, as, as I understand from a distance, I think yes. And that's mm-hmm. mostly due to Sue's persistence. And oh, you know, I, I, when we were talking about how to tell her story, we actually thought about... <clears throat> um, in having her sit down and talk to the CEO of that hospital or somebody who was involved in that care, uh, that, that lapse in delivery of care. And then we found uh, a news segment in which she had already done that. Uh, she had already, she had on television sat down face to face with the CEO and said, are you going to make sure that this never happens to anybody else? And he Mm -hmm. says, yes, we can't expect that to happen every time something goes on, but it's a good example of, of how, you know, the patient involvement can create some accountability that just isn't there without it. Um, right. and, 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 you know, to be fair, I'm sure many cases of errors, a patient never even found out about. There was a morbidity mortality report and they talked about it and they maybe put something in place to prevent an error like that from happening again. I'm sure that that happens in, in, in a lot of cases at hospitals, but certainly a lot where it doesn't. And that's something that with the increase of responsibilities that are, are being put on clinicians, it's making it harder and harder every day for them to be able to step back and ask themselves if they did enough or if they did it right. And right. so that's why we keep bringing up the patient's role. Yeah. And, you know, the, there, there's a number of, um, you know, solutions talked about in the film. I, I think, you know, the, the idea around, um, checklists, um, you know, taking lessons from aviation safety. Um, Captain Sully Sullenberger is in the film, and and I've met um, other pilots who do, uh, you know, training in operating room settings of, of teaching people how to speak up in a way that's most likely to be heard. Um, you know, people who are lower in the hierarchy, but then also. You know, we're talking with leaders and surgeons of, of how to create an environment where it's safe for people to speak up, that, that, that everyone is on the same team working for the patient. Um, you know, cultural aspects like that seem uh, to, be, to be as important as tactics in, in, in and, and look, solve this problem. I, I know that the majority of people who are listening are, are likely working in healthcare, and they might be asking themselves, well, why are we talking about the patient so much? Like, I, what, what can I do? Well, that's, right. the, that's not the right way of thinking about it. And you know, the, what the patient can do is almost always going to be determined by what the doctor nurse tells them to do. And if, if the healthcare system isn't telling patients, hey, we need you to be vigilant. We need you to speak up. We need you to look around and say, hey, is what you're seeing correct? And not just for the inpatient, right? For everybody, everybody who steps foot in a hospital and the continuum of care too, which we don't have time in the film to go through, yeah. but it's all part of it. it. You know, it starts with the, the system and the people who work in it saying, yeah. we need your help. And right. it's hard to do that without acknowledging that there's a problem in the first place. And I totally get why that's a really tough task. It's really difficult to say you're un- you're not safe unless you are looking around. I mean, that's like before you, you know, go into an airplane, they're like, you know, they'd kind of do this, but if they were to say the pilot goes on the, the speaker and says, um, I've never had a crash before. But, you know, <laughs> hey, it's possible. So if you see the engine on fire, let me know. <laughs> like, right. that's not going to happen. But it's different when it's one-on-one. And I think we should really start to, to think about 
um, how we can open up that to people so that everybody's involved. Yeah, and, and, and there's different, so yeah, there, I think there's parallels in teaching and encouraging and creating an environment for um, medical you know, hospital employees to speak up and teaching patients how to speak up. I mean, I, 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 look, I agree with your analogy. I've, I mean, I've, you know, I, I've never had a flight where a pilot comes on and talks about the risks. Like, you know, if you go for surgery, um, they'll talk about, you know, the, the, the risk you could die. The pilot doesn't come on board the flight and say, Shh, you know, oh, there is a risk that we will crash and please sign this form. Uh, maybe that's, that's built into buying the ticket. But this idea, like, there have been campaigns that I sort of um, cringe when I see, um, you know, nurses being encouraged to wear buttons that say to the patient, ask us if we've washed our hands. Because to your point, the pilot isn't wearing a button that says, ask us if we've double checked the flaps before takeoff. Like that's the pilot's responsibility. It's the airline's responsibility. Even though when I was a, a kid uh, growing up in Detroit, there was a North, uh, it was, I think it was North, yeah, it was Northwest Airlines at that point. Uh, a plane that crashed on takeoff um, at the Detroit airport because the flaps weren't set properly. And that was missed before takeoff. And to, to aviation's credit, they've built that into checklists and there's more discipline around the checklists and not having personal conversations while the plane is taxiing and, you know, aviation um, has solved one of those problems. But, you know, I, I, I agree with the people in the, uh, I think it was Dr. Ashish Jha who said in the film, you know, it's unfair to ask patients to sort this out, but the reality is that it's necessary. So I think, you know, maybe, sorry, I'm, going on and on. But bring it back to you, Mike. Uh, there's an organization I know you're aware of, um, a nonprofit that, that I'm fortunate to be on the board of, the Louise H. Batts Patient Safety Foundation. They're going to be doing a screening of your film in San Antonio. And they do a lot of work, not just to raise awareness, but to produce their Bats guides that help prompt. It's not just the vague idea of you should ask questions, but here are questions that are really helpful. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, some, some of your other thoughts on that. I've, I've been babbling instead of asking a question. Sorry. No, it's a conversation. <laughs> it's good. We, right. We've been trying to, you know, connect with as many organizations like the Louise Batts uh, Foundation as possible because, you know, they're really at the core of bridging the gap um, in, in a way that's productive. And one of the ways mm -hmm. we've been doing that is through screenings and, you know, we're, we're thankful that uh, after a lot of planning and trying to figure out how to do it, we, we're going to be able to bring the film to Texas for two screenings, one in San Antonio, one in Austin, uh, here actually in like a couple, right after the release of the film on the 24th yeah. and 25th, I believe. Uh, we, you know, we've been, we, those screenings are, I think, the most, um, most productive way for us to really share the message of this film and organizations like like the Louise Batts Foundation, um, you know, Helen Haskell does Mothers Against Medical Errors. Um, you know, Sue works with some of them. Sue, who's in the film, works with, you know, uh, the Society for Diagnostic Error in Medicine. There are a lot of organizations, both at the foundational um, grassroots level, all the way up to sort of these federal um, subliminal agencies that don't really get a lot of attention. They're all trying to play a role in, in helping to reduce errors. You know, the, they're all funded very differently and they all do very different things for outreach. In my opinion, one of the best ways to create awareness for an issue is first to, to have a, a, a sort of concise way of telling people the problem and the solutions. And that's where documentaries can come in. But, but having a conversation is so key. And to be able to facilitate screenings and facilitate conversations in which you know the audience is a mixed bag you really find the the questions that people ask come from a lot of different areas but they're all very connected and usually it comes down to okay so now i know in a sort of macro way what's the problem and what it looks like when people are working on it okay so what are we doing here in this region in this town in this state and we've been able to take this film to boston you know la new york Chicago, big cities, but what about all these other ones that all have their own hospital, that all have their own systems that don't ever get 
you know, Don Berwick or Lucian Leap or, uh, you know, the National Patient Safety Foundation, they, these, they don't all come out to these towns. They can't. And so uh, our film is able, I hope, to, you know, enlighten these smaller communities in a way that can let them just stay focused on what they're doing on a local yeah. level. And it's really cool. It's really cool to be able to do that. And, you know, we've been partnering with a lot of organizations and foundations to help do that because we just can't do it on our own. Yeah. And you, you, people can find those dates on the website for the film to airishumanfilm.com. Yeah, you were uh, Austin on January 23rd, San Antonio on January 24th. Um, there's right. other dates and events. If, if somebody wants to, and, and, and the film will be released on the 22nd on uh, iTunes and Amazon, but let's say if somebody is listening here, they're, they're working at a hospital, they're on a board, they're involved in some way, uh, is is there a process for scheduling uh, a screening at their organization? How can they do that? Yeah, yeah. We uh, we have a booking sheet on our website, which is just like a little form. You say your name and you just briefly tell us who you are and that you want to bring the film to wherever you are. And we we give you um, uh, some information. Like, like you know, you, you, people still have to license the film because when you buy it on iTunes or Amazon, it's – for personal use, technically right, speaking. So, right, right. so, you know, but we, we work directly with you. It's me. Um, I'm just going to be the one who's talking to you about, okay, Hey, you want to bring the film to uh, university of Texas, San Antonio. Great. Um, here's a licensing fee. It, it's, it's very, it's not very expensive. And um, you know, just sign it. You basically just sign a piece of paper that says, Hey, we're going to screen it here. And then we'll get, we give, we give people all kinds of stuff like marketing materials so they can stay in line with the film. And then we'll work with mm -hmm. them on the, the presentation copy. So, and so I'm very involved and I'll be very interactive with people to do that. And we occasionally are asked to come out to the screenings to be part of the conversation that takes place after we did yeah. 75 screenings in 2018. It was, it oh, was, wow. it was amazing. Um, and we did it without really ever promoting or advertising the film. It was all word of mouth. One, mm -hmm. one, one place screens it. They tell their friends, colleagues, we screen it at a conference. We get three or four screenings out of that. And every screening has had a panel discussion after. Yeah. Every, every yeah. single one. And I think it's crucial to do that. And, and, and in many cases, mm -hmm. you know, it's tough to get people out of the clinical uh, schedule to go see a movie. I get that. It's, it's a 77 minute long movie. It's a feature length film. It's not, you know, a 20 minute video, right? It, it's, it, it, it tells a story that's, that's whole and complete. And oftentimes we're asked, Hey, can you shorten the film, uh, for, you know, these people who are super busy and, and, and we say no, yeah, we say, we say no, I, I want everybody to see the film. And what, you know, I understand that showing 20 minutes of it can be of, of significant value for anybody who watches it. And I don't want to discredit that. But sure. I think it's really important that if people are going to take this issue seriously and use our film as, an, as you know, a way of navigating that conversation, it's important to see the, the big picture because we, we really created this film in a way that I hope people understand how, um, how morphed together the patient's story is with the patient's safety story as a whole and, and how you can't separate those two. So, you know, we, that's what the screening conversations do so well is create a really good way of saying, okay, what are the big issues? And, and then what are the localized ways we're going to make sure this doesn't happen here? Um, what, one other question before we wrap up here, you know, you said, you know, the film's 77 minutes long. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's really uh, engaging. Um, and, and gay, real, really engaging film. But um, what, what was one really interesting thing that ended up on the cutting room floor? And I know that might be a sore spot. I'm sure you want, there's, there's a lot of things you want to include as a filmmaker and editing is tough. But. You know, it, it, the harder part is figuring out which one to talk about. Uh, oh, okay, well, it doesn't have to be just we spent, No, I know, uh, but we spent, <laughs> we spent three years making this film and mm. I think we interviewed 32 or 33 people all over the country um, from, you know, two, two uh, physician researchers, maybe is what I will call them. Hopefully they're not listening and then, and then get mad at that. But um, out of uh, Boston who are working on 
the concept of disrespect as a form of preventable harm mm-hmm. um, and, and how people, how, how healthcare is, is diminished when that happens. We didn't put that in the film, but that passing through that, I think one, one example that I thought was really interesting was um, uh, the psychology side of things, which does make a brief appearance in the film. I, I really wanted to get into the sort of crux of, um, well, what, what drives people to make errors? Like what, what are the most basic ways that that happens? And, and, and just humanize the, the issue of errors, of mistakes. Um, it was tough to really grasp a hold of that. That didn't take us out onto a, a whole nother platform in this film. Um, and two other small examples would be, we tried really hard. Um, I, I had a like brief meeting with, uh, the, with uh, Billy Bean, the GM of the Oakland Athletics, who oh, right. was you know, yeah. the, the designer of the Moneyball concept <laughs> and wanted to really bring him into the film because he's actually spoken at a number of health conferences to talk about that concept of running a business in the same oh. way that they did because you know, they use data and statistics to, to, to take the less likely routes. And of course, they haven't won a World Series yet since they did it, but hey, they are a successful organization and they spend a lot less money. So I, we were so close to getting him and we didn't. And then I was like, well, maybe Theo Epstein, who's right down the street from me <laughs> with the Cubs. Yeah. <laughs> couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and so, so those aren't cutting room floor examples, but they're kind of examples of stories we would have liked to have told that didn't make the film. Um, one thing that did reach the cutting room floor that I think is worth sort of looking into if people are interested was uh, we went to Johns Hopkins and we interviewed some people at the Applied Physics Laboratory. We talked about uh, the, the sort of science of error in military weaponry and mm. how precise they have to be, but how often they make mistakes as well. But when they make a mistake, innocent people die. People who had nothing to do with it who weren't involved in the situation. And I think that's a really sort of prime example of things here. Um, and and if for some reason, it just, it just didn't fit. You know, I think when you watch the film, you'll see it's packed pretty tight. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of information and we tried to make sure that we stayed focused uh, throughout the making of it. And when we realized that we could get Sully Sullenberger, we said, well, why don't we just kind of go deeper into the aviation thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he, he's been uh, a, a great advocate for right. uh, improving patient safety, improving healthcare. Um, and, you know, it's, al- it's always great when, when people in healthcare are open to lessons from other industries, whether that's aviation, uh, military. There's a lot of people who talk about, um, you know, books. Um, Stan- uh, General Stanley McChrystal's book, Team of Teams. Um, another book, um, you know, book from a naval um, uh, ship captain. Um, there's two books, It's Your Ship and Turn the Ship Around. And then there's examples that come from manufacturing um, that, that, that the, the audience for this podcast knows and appreciates. You know, uh, we've all been told uh, that patients aren't cars. Well, of course, but there, there are, I think, a lot of lessons to learn from companies like Toyota and, and from other industries. And you know, I, I, I think it's probably fair to say organizations that are making the most progress with improving patient safety aren't finding answers only within healthcare in terms of best practices yeah. or um, learning from other health systems outside ideas, even if they're not copied, hopefully spark a lot of thought and creativity and innovation. Well, and you know, something that infuriates me um, as, as I've gone along making and promoting and sharing this film is the occasional um, detractor who thinks it's just not, it's not that easy when we, you know, when they hear something like, uh, you know, actually I just got somebody just did this on Twitter like today. Uh, it, we, we have a quote from Michael Melanson in the film where he says we could prevent many of these deaths immediately if we just put in the effort. Mm-hmm. Look, that's not, uh, you know, that's not the end all be all answer. That's, that's, that is not how we're going to fix this problem with just goodwill and effort. But right. often, and, and I know one's saying it is, but that's the starting block. And oftentimes you'll see, you know, people see this film or they see lines like that and they think that it's just this sort of, you know, pie in the sky idea that, well, if we just want to do better, we can. Hmm. Um, it's a start. 
it's a start. And I think it's a really dangerous way to look at this problem only with numbers, mm-hmm. only with mm-hmm. hard, specific, concrete, one-by-one data. Evidence-based medicine was my dad's passion. It was his career. Um, I, I, want, I want this film to be, you know, something that, is, that stems from evidence. But I think that if you only look at, uh, at, at things that are wildly perfect, that are just amazing, like, wow, this is exactly what's happening. You're going to miss a big picture on an issue that really is hard to tabulate. And one of the reasons why the number is, you know, seems like it's rising. You know, in 1998, it was, 90, it was 40 to 90,000. Now the numbers range from 250 to 440,000. That, that, that is not because it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. Right. In fact, it's the opposite. The healthcare industry is realizing that this is a serious issue and they're putting in the effort to get a better understanding of, of how widespread it is. And I think if you, look, if you had the same tools now as they had in 1998 when they were doing that research, I think that uh, you would find somewhere around that same estimate range. And, and this is the beauty of science and healthcare is science. And, you know, you're, it's always going to be changing and it's always going to be getting better. The question is, are you getting better or are you staying the same? Because you, you, mm-hmm. you, you, get, you get worse or you get better. You don't stay the same. And, and I want every hospital to be thinking of it that way. And I want them to be thinking of how they can change their approach to really think about patients as part of the team. Yeah. And, you know, um, your film does a really good job of presenting, um, you know, human stories, not just um, Sue Sheridan, her son, Cal, her, her late husband, Pat, um, but, but looking at the numbers and, and the underlying issues. So I, I think it did a really great job of, of not just highlighting the problem, but talking about um, solutions uh, and, and, and ideas for the future. So you know, I really want to uh, thank you for the film. Thank you for um, shedding light um, on, on this issue. And um, I, I hope everyone finds a way um, individually or in, in a group setting um, to go find the film. So our, our guest today has been Mike Eisenberg. Um, as, as he said earlier, part of the team uh, that created uh, a film uh, being released uh, January 22nd, To Air is Human. And you can um, find the website again, to toairishumanfilm.com. Um, Michael, I'll leave it to you if you've got any other uh, final thought for the audience. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll feed off of what you just said a little bit too to give some additional um, context on where people will find the film because... Um, you know, our initial release is iTunes for digital and most big box stores, online uh, stores will have it like Amazon, but also Walmart. And uh, if you're, if you like love to shop Walmart online or, you know, Best Buy, um, uh, Target, all them. But uh, our, our hope is that through a successful launch by somewhat traditional film filmmaking terms, uh, we're able to reach then streaming platforms and Mm -hmm. potentially have the opportunity to be shared by PBS or a national network. I mean, this is a very real possibility for us. Mm. We we're taking the long road. You know, we're a small film, independent film. We raised our own money. We got a grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore foundation to extend our, our funding, but we were vastly underfunded for a documentary. And through that, you know, we did the best we could but we're also kind of working grassroots for awareness and also for exposure. So the more people that watch this film, the more people that engage with it on social media and in other platforms like that will show the world that not only is this film worth watching, but also this topic is worth talking about. And I think, you know, people should start to think about films like ours, films like that HBO one bleed out or the Netflix one bleeding edge that uh, as an opportunity to, to support films about patient safety and about improving healthcare, um, because ultimately that's what we all want. We all want to see the healthcare system get better, be, be more reliable, and take care of patients the way that all the people who get into healthcare got into it for the reason in the first place. And I think films have a great way of bridging the gap between the outside world and the inside world of healthcare, um, and then have great conversations after it. And that's what we want to see. Yeah. 
Well, I hope I hope that all happens. Um, you're you're right. I see here the pre-order page on Amazon for the Blu-ray and DVD. iTunes is the digital platform if people want to do streaming. Correct. That's right. All right. Well, th thank you so much, Mike. Um, I hope everyone goes and, and and checks that out. I'll put links uh, to everything on uh, the blog post for this episode. So again, Mike Eisenberg, thank you so much for taking, uh, taking time today. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. Mm -hmm.